so often when we think about decisions that are made for our institutions or we discuss governance, um, it usually falls within kind of two bodies. That's usually either the, the president and their cabinet, or we think about faculty and faculty governance. Um, but there's um, a couple of other entities that are involved. And specifically, um, we focus on the entity of the board of trustees. Uh, the board of trustees, depending on your institutional type, can be um, self-nominated or self, we call self-perpetuating, where persons on the board um, nominate people on the board and bring them in, or they can be appointed by either state legislature or um, a gubernatorial administration. And so when we think about that, really we're talking about persons who um, have vested interest in the decisions that are made in school and how they um, the strategic uh, direction that an institution goes in. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we're talking about working with boards and legislatures as they lead, govern, oversee, and intervene in institutions of higher education. We have three guests with lots of knowledge and expertise uh, with us today. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Anthology. Learn more about their innovative data-driven platforms to build and foster your campus student engagement experience. Learn more by visiting anthology.com backslash engage. This episode is also sponsored by Leadershape. Go to leadershape.org to learn how they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach. And you can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm broadcasting from Minneapolis, Minnesota at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Let's get to the conversation. I wanted to host today's conversation because it's a complexity of higher education leadership that I think is often overlooked by many student affairs professionals, perhaps because our lack of access to boards and boards general lack of regard for student affairs work. Uh, however, this issue is back on our minds as we saw legislatures and boards play major roles in censorship of critical race theory, limiting COVID safety protocols around masks and vaccines, the Nicole Hannah-Jones debacle, and so much more. I'm so excited to be joined by these three folks, all with incredible and very different perspectives on this. So let's meet our guests today and have them introduce themselves a little bit and uh, with their day job and then their, their experience with uh, boards and legislatures. Ardell, we're gonna kick it off with you. All right, uh, my name is Ardell Sanders and I currently serve as the Director for Residential Education at Indiana State University in the Office of Residential Life. Um, a little bit about my board experience. Um, I have served for the past three years um, on the Board of Trustees at Clark University in Dubuque, Iowa, a small private liberal arts institution. Um, I've also served on the, um, the alumni board there and I've done that for the past eight years, um, serving on committees for both, both uh, groups and we'll talk a little bit more about it as I go along. Thanks, Ardell. So glad you're here with us. Uh, Joe, tell us a little bit about you. Yes, Keith, thanks. Uh, my name is Joe Sertich. Uh, I'm the uh, President Emeritus of the Northeast Minnesota Higher Education District, um, where I served as uh, President for 
uh, nine years. I've had three college presidencies. That was the capstone of, of those three. Um, I currently reside on Minnesota's Iron Range, and um, I use the pronouns he, uh, him, and his. Um, I am happy to be here today to talk about what I think is at the heart of a lot of um, important decisions that get made and why they get made and the processes that we use to get there. Uh, I've worked closely with the uh, legislature as well as uh, local, regional, and uh, large state board. Uh, Minnesota State Colleges and Universities was the third uh, largest higher education system in the state. And I also worked at a college that had a very small local board. So uh, hopefully um, I, look, I can look forward to uh, bringing those kinds of experiences to our conversation today. So glad you're here with us. Um, Felicia, tell us about you. Hi, thanks, Keith. Uh, my name is Felicia Commodore. I am an assistant professor in higher education at Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, my research areas coalesce into three major areas. One is looking at governance, leadership, and administrative practices, um, particularly focusing on historically Black colleges and universities and minority-serving institutions. I also um, engage in research around boards of trustees, governing boards, and thinking about decision-making processes, how board composition um, and board diversity impact those processes, and also thinking about how boards can engage in their work in a way that moves institutions to being more equitable. And lastly, I look at the relationship that Black women have with leadership in the higher education space. Um, and so that is the bulk of my work, and I'm really excited to be here today talking about governance and how it impacts what we do on our campuses. Awesome. Well, as I was saying before, Felicia, we're going to stick with you. And when we were talking about this topic with our host team and wanting to do this, as soon as I would mention it, Dr. Susana Munoz would say, Felicia Commodore, Old, Old Dominion, you, you got to get her and uh, recommended you multiple times. So I'm so glad you're here. As you just shared in your bio, such a great fit to help us really understand all of this and understand the complexity and really looking at all of it. So could you begin by just kind of helping lay the groundwork about boards and legislatures? As you mentioned, you've done a lot of this work broadly, but also specifically with HBCUs. Um, but just kind of help us understand for folks who are really unfamiliar with this part of the governance structure, um, what is beyond the institutional leadership? Sure. So, so often when we think about decisions that are made for our institutions or we discuss governance, um, it usually falls within kind of two bodies. That's usually either the, the president and their cabinet, or we think about faculty and faculty governance. Um, all, but there's um, a couple of other entities that are involved. And specifically, um, we focus on the entity of the board of trustees. Uh, the board of trustees, depending on your institutional type, can be um, self-nominated or self, we call self-perpetuating, where persons on the board um, nominate people on the board and bring them in, or they can be appointed by either state legislature or um, a gubernatorial administration. And so when we think about that, really we're talking about persons who um, have vested interest in the decisions that are made in school and how they, um, the strategic uh, direction that an institution goes in. And that could, that brings into it a lot of po political ideologies, that brings into it a lot of perspectives um, that could or could not align with the mission of the institution, right? And so the discussion that 
um, myself and other colleagues have been having is, um, why don't we know more about people who are sitting in these seats that ultimately play a role in making decisions that impact the long-term health and the sustainability of an institution? And particularly when we look at historically Black colleges and universities, um, one of the issues that we've seen or that we want to explore with boards is presidential turnover, right? The board, mm -hmm. one of the board's major jobs is hiring fine presidents. So um, when we start to see three or four or five presidents <laughs> in a matter of seven or eight years, we have to start to begin to look at the board, right? And what's going on there. And um, when we think of state legislatures and historically black colleges and universities, often we're thinking about um, budgets and, and budget lines. And um, we know that historically, particularly our public HBCUs have been very much underfunded in comparison to their predominantly white counterparts. Mm -hmm. Um, and so when you go back, right, and you think about state legislatures and governors appoint board members, so boards, and you think about the state legislatures also can control uh, the purse strings, for lack of better words, to these institutions, we then begin to have to step back and think about what are the connections that happen between these legislative bodies, these boards, and how does that impact the decisions they're making that directly impact what happens on these campuses, how these campuses approach what they do and how they're able to or not able to access resources and able to do their job. Right, it really gets at the roots of sort of systemic uh, systems of inequity and racism and white supremacy if these legislatures and boards are being appointed and then overseeing um, institutions that are for and often by black folks. Um, I love the, the, the foregrounding you did. I've worked in higher education for more than 20 years. And I think you just told me more than I've ever been taught about boards, about <laughs> appointments and everything. I mean, honestly, most of my training about boards was the boards here today. You need to wear a tie, uh, <laughs> uh, get dressed up. The boards on campus today. You got to navigate that. Um, so I really appreciate that. Um, well, you and colleagues just released, uh, I don't know when it came out, I saw it earlier this week, a <laughs> new uh, journal article based on a research study you've done around boards. And my understanding, clean this up if I mess this up, is that you really looked at a lot of documents uh, from 22 different boards and looking at their support or lack thereof around diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Could you tell us a little bit more about this research and some of the conclusions and recommendations that you and your colleagues have about boards and DEI work? Sure. So, uh, yeah, the article is kind of just fresh off the presses. So I'm okay. <laughs> really excited that it's kind of gotten the buzz it did. But um, myself and my co-authors, uh, Dr. Dimitri Morgan, who's at Loyola University of Chicago, and Dr. Lucy LeCou, who is at um, Indiana University, we um, were discussing thinking about boards in relationship to diversity, equity, and inclusion work, DEI work. And what you'll find is that often we don't talk about boards and DEI together. Um, maybe the extent of what we talk about is maybe actually board composition, who sits on boards and if the boards are diverse, but we never really think about boards as being a part of the DEI work or initiatives or strategic approaches at an institution. Often we lay that at the feet of programmatic leads, right? So student affairs, academic affairs, a lot of times student affairs mm -hmm. are seen as the DEI people. 
Mm -hmm. um, or your chief diversity officer. And so what we wanted to get at is if we're saying that boards, right, play a role in thinking about the long-term strategic planning for an institution, think about how they play a role in making decisions that impact the health or, or um, thinking about uh, what we call their fiduciary duty. And one is to ensure that the institution um, is protected and, and doing the things it's supposed to do in order to um, make sure that it, it sustains itself. Mm -hmm. Then why aren't we talking to boards about diversity, equity, inclusion? Why aren't boards involved or are they involved? Because we really didn't know. And so what we did was we looked at 22 governing boards who, had, um, who were at institutions that had already been designated as inclusively excellent. And so these are institutions that had already been um, um, honored or kind of given accolades for their DEI work. And so we wanted to see were boards involved in that? Um, one of the tricks, tricky things about board research is that you're often not allowed. Like you just don't get access. Boards are very private and they don't want people in their business. Um, so I found that really the, interesting because yeah. my understanding is you initially plan to talk to a bunch of board members yeah. <laughs> and they wouldn't talk to you. Yeah, board members um, very often are, um, it's a mix of usually, again, these are volunteers who are often very um, high level CEOs and executives and business persons. And so they're either busy or um, they want to keep things close to their chest because um, they do deal with a lot of very sensitive topics and sensitive issues. And if some of those things were to get out, it could be um, possibly bad press for the school or it could lead to, to issues that they're, they're not, they don't want to navigate outside of their boardroom. And so they tend to, to close off access to researchers. Um, and particularly if they're private institutions, they don't even have to make anything public really. And so um, it does make it very difficult to do kind of um, particularly qualitative research in which we normally doing where we, you know, sit down, you do observations on that. And they're like, no, we're not, we're not doing that. So, <laughs> um, so this was kind of our pivot and where we um, decided, okay, we will find the things that we can see, right? So board minutes, board documents um, for public in institutions, much of that is public um, and we have public access. We watched board meetings that were recorded um, we went through a lot, a lot of <laughs> data um, and pretty much what we wanted to see was, was there any evidence of boards kind of taking an active role in um, the pushing forward of, the support of, the um, initiating of DEI work on campus? Um, because we just didn't know if that was the case or not. And so what we found was that it, um, there was a range, right? There were, there were, um, boards, very few, that were kind of more active in doing that. Um, we have boards who simply may just endorse something. We have boards that never brought it up other than once maybe bringing um, a student, a VP of student affairs or a DEI person to the board meeting to talk. And so from that, um, we thought about um, myself, um, Dimitri Morgan, and Dr. Raquel Raw have a um, governance model that we call culturally sustaining governance, where we, it's pretty much an equity center governing model for mm -hmm. boards. And we thought of that in concert with Lucy Blopo's work around commitments to diversity and inclusion for institutions. Um, hers mostly focuses on student affairs bodies. And we thought, what 
based on our um, the data that we found and thinking about those two things, how can boards who want to be to make sure that they are actually pushing forward DEI work at their institutions, how they do that? And so we thought about and um, we we present this metaphor that boards um, act pretty much like electrical sockets, right? Um, in that they are they are the socket between the internal stakeholders and the external stakeholders and that are associated with DEI efforts. And so ultimately boards that um, are plugged in can actually help bolster and give power um, and more power to those efforts that are, 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 are being done. They, they, they make the connection that creates more power between those external stakeholders and those internal stakeholders. On the other hand, boards who are not plugged in actually can um, disempower to some extent or not make as powerful the uh, DEI efforts from at institutions. And so we, we um, also present a matrix of um, boards DEI capacity. And so what we present to boards is this idea of um, kind of four different types of boards that you can be. And not that you are stuck at whatever kind mm -hmm. of board you are, but that if you um, want to move to being a board that kind of pushes DEI work, there's a way to do that um, and kind of push yourself from one typology of board to another typology. Um, so one, one, right, we have is like a symbolic board. That's a board that kind of has the high capacity to do DEI work, but don't really have the, the partnerships because it doesn't really plug in, right? Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so they kind of endorse things or they do symbolic things, but there's really no power behind it. Whereas we have an ideal partnering board, where it's a board that has high DEI capacity um, and early in partnership creates conditions for, again, that power and employee tenants have robust partnerships. And so ultimately, um, what we do with this work is we're trying to push boards to think of themselves as not external to DEI work, that they don't, DEI work is not just some programmatic thing mm -hmm. that reports up to you every quarter or once, or once a year, but mm -hmm. that boards are partnering with these persons who are doing DEI work in order to, again, empower and make more powerful those DEI efforts. Fantastic. I, I love this metaphor of the electrical sockets and I love the matrix because uh, it's really helpful. It's not saying here are the good boards and bad boards. It's here's how you can progress and how you can do a better job. We'll want to make sure we get uh, links in the show notes to the article, to uh, Dr. Dimitri Morgan's great tweet thread about yes. this, um, and then also the culturally sustaining governance and Lucy LaPoon's model. I think people would be really interested in that. Thanks so much for sort of laying the foundation for us and centering DEI work with HBCUs and the work here. I think that's so critical and so important. Um, Joe, shifting gears a little bit, you were the college president of a district of community colleges for almost 10 years. In that role, as you mentioned, it was your third presidency, you worked under the oversight of a system office, a system board, and significant legislative involvement. Um, we'd love to have you help us understand these dynamics at public institutions, and really excited to have you. As Felicia was saying, many people who are in these roles can't speak freely and honestly, but you're professor, a president emeritus, which means you're retired, <laughs> which means you get to do two of your favorite things, which is tell the truth 
<laughs> and say the hard stuff. So go ahead and help our audience understand how all of this works and what's important about it at public institutions. Yeah, and of course, I'm hoping that I always told the truth and always said the hard stuff. And of course, this brings me back to something that Felicia said that I think is just spot on, and it has to do with power. I believe power is good. I think if most people peel it back, they recognize that if you if, if you really want to get what you want out of life, out of your career and the rest, the more power you have, the more likely you are to get what you know is right. And so um, I, I, I just say that because um, at no point in my career did I ever aspire to become a president until I actually had somebody tap me on the shoulder and say, hey, why don't you? And then from there, you know, it, it, the rest kind of takes over. And I, 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 you know, as I have the benefit now of reflecting back, I think a lot of that had to do with some frustration of not seeing what I wanted to see in higher education, in the institutions and the rest, and looking at the spectrum and saying, who is it that can do the most to make, to have the greatest impact on that institution. And for me, that was the president until of course you become the president, then you recognize that the board <laughs> and the legislature actually have more power than you do. Um, and uh, it also brings me back to something else that Felicia was talking about, and that's internal and external. And, and without dropping people into distinct silos, I think you can tell pretty early on whether you have an external president or an internal president mm -hmm. as an example. Mm -hmm. And um, of course, um, there aren't good or bad. I think there are benefits to both. Some people really like being on a campus and interacting with their, their customers or students, their clients, their, their constituents, um, and see that at the heart of being uh, genuine and authentic. And others see, you know, if I'm going to really make a difference, I'm going to have to do a lot of this work external. And that's where we come into, I think, the, our work with the boards and the rest. Um, the other word that Felicia uh, mentioned was governance. And I see it as involving the interaction between the formal institution and those in civil society. So a board, for me, uh, has, has more to do with the responsibilities of a strategic voice, the operational guidance, and accountability. So I always make it pretty easy when I'm working with somebody and saying, you know, if you're on a board, you have really two big things you got to do. One is select the right president and be sure that you're doing everything you can to support uh, her or him in that role. Um, and the second is your fiduciary oversight of how resources are expended. Now, those sound like two simple things, but if you really look at it, I mean, that's critical to making, you know, that ship sail, to making it work or not work, to getting to the issues of DI and all the other things that are, are, are critical to, a, to an institution. And so, you know, it comes back again to governance because, um, it's clear that the concept of governance has over the years kind of gained momentum um, and, and has kind of a wider meaning, uh, you know, and apart from being what I would call uh, an instrument of public affairs management, it also gauged that's political development. Um, it, it, the governance has become a useful mechanism to enhance the uh, legitimacy of the public realm. Um, and it's also become an analytical framework um, or approach to comparative politics. And that's where I think we get at so, so what? What do you do about that? Well, as, as, a, as a president of a district of colleges, I had five colleges in six towns. Um, at one point, because I'm in a rural setting, I actually uh, timed what it would take to just drive by the front door of each of the institutions. And that took eight hours and 15 minutes if I just waved when I rode by. So mm -hmm. 
Obviously, I wasn't going to be an internal president and be on the campus and interacting every day if it took me that long just to drive by each of the institutions. And I certainly didn't want to be at one on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. The, the point is, I had the benefit of being an external uh, president. And so uh, I've done everything from testify with the US Senate uh, on a federal level, recognizing that much of our change, many of our resources can be leveraged there. Um, I attended every single um, uh, board meeting, which was a two-day event, uh, a couple hundred miles from where I live. And uh, that always meant an overnight or two, uh, but I saw it as being critical. Uh, and of course, the relationships that you build with board members is important. But no, this is student affairs now. So you, you might be getting the impression, so it's all up to your president. I say no. Um, I, I think wherever you are in the institution, wherever you are, whether you want to start at the top and come down or look to who you supervise and work up, um, it's all about power. How can you get as much power as you can? And Figure out, figure it out. I, I don't think there's a, every every one is different. Um, I I want to say because you, you said I got to tell the truth. I mean, there's a lot of bad governance going on. Lots of bad governance all over our higher ed institutions. There's fair governance. There's some good governance, and in rare instances, there's some very effective governance. And I say that because of this <laughs> constant power struggle that goes on among presidents uh, and their board uh, or whatever. So. Um, I, I just think um, wherever you are in the institution, try to figure out who is it that I should have these relationships with that can make a difference. And in some cases, it may be a U.S. senator. In other cases, it may be uh, the state legislature and what they do. And whether you're a public or private institution, I would argue across the country, because I've worked with the, the, um, you know, the state legislatures across the country as uh, president of the Rural Community College Alliance. Um, Every one of them are making decisions that directly affect what happens on every campus. And you've just talked about a number of them that are current today, but uh, a lot of it has to do with financial resources as well. So that's, that's what I think um, people should do is try to figure that out. And if, as Felicia mentioned, maybe a vice president might come to one board meeting, that's kind of a broken system in my opinion. Um, mm -hmm. If there isn't a committee on student affairs, uh, a subcommittee on the board, then I would make a point of finding a way to be sure that that's front and center all the time uh, where those policy decisions are made. Wonderful. Well, thank you. And, and this, your comments about power reminded me of the great quote from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. So how do we leverage that power to do good, to foster equity, to do good for our students, to address the critical issues on our campus and in the communities? Uh, that we ultimately serve. So I really appreciate that. And the uh, very practical advice to make sure there's a student affairs, student services committee and being engaged in that if there isn't one. So uh, thank you, Ardell. You are, a, we just talked about bad governments. You are on a board and you're a student affairs professional. <laughs> I'd love for you to bring um, your experience as a student affairs professional, your experience on the board, what you're hearing from Joe, what you're hearing Felicia, tie it all together for your colleagues listening who are student affairs professionals. It's just no small task, but we know you can do it. Um, how would you pull this all together for us, Ardell? I think Keith, you, you actually set it up with um, something you said earlier related to, now I know, I know your history and how long you've been working in higher education and around folks. Uh, and you mentioned how little that even you knew and understood about boards and um, how all of that works. And I think that's the biggest thing. 
uh, for a student or as professional, no matter what the level is, um, I think that the first thing is to understand what board are about, um, understanding the structure and the composition of the board, learning, uh, and, and in some cases you can get some of this information, in other cases you'll probably have to talk to other people and try to figure out as much as you can, but on what the, the bylaws are, um, the board size, the how the board is constructed, who's on your board. Uh, I, I serve on a board at a small liberal arts Catholic institution. And so when I first uh, came on, there were seven nuns and one priest on the board. Um, mm -hmm. And that's because being a, a mission-driven institution, understanding the need of that particular institution, those folks bring a voice to that boardroom um, that's important to the institution. And so how your board is constructed matters. Um, looking at the history and traditions, the institutional needs, um, how members are elected. So not just who's elected, but how are they elected? So I, I currently serve on the um, uh, board development committee. And I specifically chose that committee because of some things that I mentioned before related to um, the diversity of the folks on there, not just racial diversity or gender diversity, looking at the experiential diversity of people there, the financial diversity of the people on the board. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there are lots of things to look at. And as a student affairs professional, I knew none of these things before I actually joined the board. Um, <laughs> I, knew, I knew absolutely none. And so governance, um, you know, what type of board do you have? Do you have a consolidated board, which is, I'm assuming, probably what Joe was working with as a president over a district of, um, of colleges. Uh, and so looking at that, is it a coordinating where it's just your board for your institution, um, understanding how they govern and, and what structures are there? That's where the bylaws and all of that will come in in terms of how that board is governed. Um, understanding the authority of a board. I mean, there's, there's so many levels and so many different things that I think student affairs professionals may not understand. Um, and, and it doesn't matter where you are in your in your career. Oftentimes what I know of, up until um, I joined the board is when the board of trustees was on campus, we knew when, okay, we may have to show up at a meeting <laughs> or I will be in a suit that day. Um, mm -hmm. They're probably going to be some more prime, uh, prime parking spaces taken up because mm -hmm. the board needs to be here parking those spaces. The grounds so are going to look beautiful. The grounds are yeah, going to be Yeah, absolutely. going to be great. Everything's going to be gorgeous. <laughs> so we knew that the board was important. We didn't understand uh, exactly what the board did. And so um, one of the things that I think I've learned as a board member is I always thought about board of trustees members as individuals. And what I think I've learned, and, and I can only speak from my individual experience, is that it, it's the whole board that has the power. Individuals can have influence. But the whole board, because of the way the votes go, um, has the power. And now individuals with influence can obviously sway that. And so there, there may be individual people who uh, are able to make some decisions because they're able to sway other folks. But when you talk about the actual authority of a board, uh, an individual has no ownership of an institution. They have no true authority as an individual board member. But the group, it, it's a very powerful entity. Um, having to work with the college or university president, or chancellor, whatever is the the person at the institution, that person is important. Have a powerful person in that presidential role because having to work with the, a board can be, be very, very daunting. Um, and I learned this at a very small institution and I was very fortunate in my first set of board meetings. I was able to come in at the time my 
uh, we were picking and selecting a new president. Uh, after 34 years of having two nuns as president uh, for 34 year period, for a 34 year period, we were able to uh, select a new president, and we were very fortunate to get the individual that we have. But it was very different for the institution. Um, we went with a male who isn't Catholic, which was very, very, there was a deal. It was a big deal. Mm -hmm. But selecting the right person to your institution is important. Um, evaluating that president and making sure that their performance is set based off of the performance indicators that you all set forth as a board working with the president to craft those. Um, looking at the board policies. I mean, there's just so many different pieces that I think student affairs professionals learn uh, and then one last piece that I think I will uh, comment on are those board committees. Having a student there as a student life or whatever the term may be for your board committee, th that's so critical. Um, looking at other uh, board options like enrollment management, uh, budget and finance. Uh, there are just a lot of different committees that will give student affairs professionals an opportunity if they have an opportunity to sit in um, and work with any of these committees because you don't have to be at every single thing. You can work on behalf of university, on behalf of your department, on a committee. And I think that's an opportunity for people to understand board structure and how to work with the board. Um, but those committees, I think, are vital if student affairs professionals have an opportunity to work. Otherwise, just passing information up through your leadership team, um, the president and the president's cabinet, and uh, hopefully having them take on uh, some of that information, whether it's from faculty senate, staff senate, whether um, obviously in student affairs it'd be staff senate working with um, that group to make sure that your voice is heard and that the collective voice of the staff is heard. So lots and lots of different things that I think student affairs professionals can learn in terms of working with boards. Um, but that, that's been my experience and I think those will be key pieces to, to know. Wonderful. Again, you, you've taught me so much and, and all three of you. I'm just learning a ton, uh, which, which is wonderful. Uh, love to kind of circle back around and see real quickly kind of what additional tips uh, you would have for student affairs leaders. We've shared some. Uh, Felicia, we've, we heard from you. You gave set us up at the beginning. And uh, what would you like to add for what Joe and Ardell have shared? Tips for student affairs pros. So, so what, um, one of the things that I think student affairs leaders can do is really um, not um, in agreement with what Joe said about having committees on the board that are dedicated or thinking about student affairs, student life. I think also to go a step further is really thinking about what it is that you can put before the board as an opportunity to partner. Um, and this comes again, right, with knowing who's on the board, what is the board talking about, what are the current conversations going on the board. But often um, board members are not people who have worked in higher education, mostly their connection to higher education is often that they went to college. And so um, we assume that they, because they're in these positions, that they know what opportunities there are to partner, what it is they, they could be supporting on campus. But really, a lot of times um, that knowledge comes through them from getting information from people on campuses. And so thinking about not just reporting what you're doing um, to the board, but also being a bit proactive and, and laying out before them, here's an opportunity that could really help our institution grow, could help our students, could help us achieve our mission, could help our reputation. But we do need some support. We need either resources or we need um, manpower. We need, we need something. And, and how can the board partner 
in helping us do that, whether that's connecting us to external resources, whether that is um, uh, approving a budget increase, um, different uh, things of that sort. So giving them actual opportunities to partner and, and laying those before them. And then the last thing that I would say is at public institutions, you all, uh, most of those board meetings have something which is called an open session. And an open session um, is an part of the board meeting where the public can come, they can get on um, the docket to talk for a brief amount of time about anything they feel needs to be put before the board. And often I find that um, persons don't go to the open session. They don't sign up for the open session. They don't um, even come to observe what the board is talking about or what's on the agenda. And so I would encourage um, student affairs leaders to, to look particularly at public institutions to find out when the board is meeting, if there's something that you feel the board needs to be thinking about to get on that um, open session docket to give your two minute speech about what it is they should be thinking about or to let them know that, you know, there's things that on on the campus that they should be, be aware of. Now I understand um, student affairs leaders are super busy, right? And so this may, it's like another meeting, but I do think it's really important to utilize that opportunity um, to, to really make sure that your voice is heard and that you're part of the process and that you're on the record um, and being able to say, hey, the board can't say they didn't know because somebody told you it's on the record that that happened. And, and then I would also add, even if you don't say anything, to go and observe and see what's on the agenda, see what the board is talking about, see what's coming down the pipeline. And so you can be prepared and think about not only how you can shore up your office or prepare your office and the people you work with for what might may, may happen, but also wh where you can position yourself and leverage yourself in that conversation so that you can make sure that you benefit from it. As well as Joe said, this is about power. And I think often student, student affairs leaders feel disempowered from the mm -hmm. governance process, but there are op opportunities for you to plug in to different parts of that process so that you do have power and you do have voice. And so I would encourage them to do that in, in order to make sure that their students' voices are heard and that student affairs practitioners' voices are heard as part of this process. Wonderful. Well, a couple of things I'm hearing from you is build relationships where you can, right? Find what they're interested in, build relationships. Don't be afraid to educate the board about how these institutions actually function because they may just not be familiar. And I know we've talked about some board members who are not engaged, they're CEO, they've got other things. I also think there are board members who really want to be involved. They want to spend more time on campus. They want to meet the students. They want to do that. And then the other thing, um, I think a lot of times what we're doing with boards is telling them that everything's great, everything's great, everything's fine. Let us keep our jobs. Uh, but how do you find opportunities to tell the board what's not going well, to say the hard stuff? These are the challenges we're facing and we need your help with that. Joe, what would you add? Anything you'd like to add uh, for recommendations for student affairs professionals working with boards and legislatures? I want to leverage off of what uh, Felicia said. Um, and you know, I'm a certified life coach working mostly with executive leadership. And the question I ask more often than any other one is, what do you want? And I think that's at the heart of this that comes back to power. And then I'd like to just bifurcate that into two politicals. When you're working with government, which is a key component of everything that affects us, that's the big P. And I just want you to know that 
um, for years, uh, you know, there was no question which party I was affiliated with. And just to keep you all guessing, I won't tell you here, but I was a state delegate in 2018, um, you know, at the convention. Um, and um, there was no secret about that. And that actually helped me with everybody in the political arena. Once somebody says, I will serve as your whatever, they're that senator, representative, or whatever for everyone. And they recognize that. <clears throat> you can actually get more attention from them than people of their political party. And so don't hide the fact and say, well, I have to be apolitical. Even as a president, I never understood that because I would actually find that to be helpful. So there's the big P with the political, there's a small P with the board. And let me just tell you a quick story there. When I was trying to put this governance structure together of five uh, community colleges in a district and had public hearings and all the rest, I got called in front of this 15 member board that had three students on it, all appointed by the governor. <clears throat> I got called before the, the board because one trustee had some questions and she just grilled me. And it was, it was actually, um, people felt sorry for me, the way she attacked what I was trying to do. And more importantly, the way she thought I was trying to do it and everything's strategic. Um, as it turns out, I walked away from the table and, you know, I, I kind of get how things work. And, it, and I was thinking, I was hoping this was true. And sure enough, to have that one person against me guaranteed 14 other votes in the other <laughs> So think strategically. It's not bad when somebody lines up against you because that may be just what it takes to get, and I, I hate to call it the sympathy vote because it was the right thing to do, but you know, it, it actually kind of pushed me over. The other thing is formal and informal. I love the informal. That's kind of the open hearing part, say whatever needs to get said and the rest. Mm -hmm. um, and then there are other informals by building those relationships with board members. And I don't mean in the on the side, but at board meetings, they take breaks. You, you get a chance to meet yeah. people and you build that relationship mm -hmm. so that you have some credibility as well as the formal. And then let me just end with, um, I was a, a chair of a board, a nonprofit uh, several years ago and went to a conference in New York. I came back convinced that what our board needed more than anything else was a governance committee. And it has absolutely mm. changed. Uh, Keith, you're actually working with this board mm. now. That governance committee changed everything. Now that we're purposeful about DNI, they were they were purposeful about how we evaluated board members, how we evaluated the president, and how we would align all that because that somebody was paying attention to how the board works, and that's where you could go if you wanted to get on the agenda and had trouble either doing it, you know, through a, a different process and say, you know, this is this, something's missing here. So again. Uh, I know I, I'm saying governance a lot, but in this case, uh, I hope every board has a governance committee. Great suggestion. Great suggestion. Ardell, anything you want to add for recommendations? I would say that basically nailed it. Um, the one thing additional that I would add on both the open sessions, uh, joining committees, whether it's um, staff council, staff senate, or a committee that's a part of the board that you may be able to join, uh, would be to just do your homework on how the institution works. And it's the and it's not just from the president down, it's from the board down. And it may even start at the governor down, understanding how the entire structure of the institution works. And then how can I, as a student affairs professional, get my foot in doors so that my voice can be heard and I can speak on behalf of myself, my constituents, and the students that I serve. 
and, and be smart. And if I could just say, and be smart about it. just like I, I gave that kind of that story about how one was against and the rest were for. Be careful not to just think you won because you now have a student affairs committee. That could right. be exactly how you get devalued by saying, oh, we have a committee on that. We shouldn't have to worry exactly. about it. So it, it works both ways. You got to be really strategic in how you see how this plays out. Yeah, I would I would add to with Ardell, like, um, and this is something I stress to the, the, the students in my student affairs program. Um, you need to know how things formally work, and then you need to know how things are practiced, right? So you mm -hmm. need to know the, the way things informally work. Um, and and um, I think that's really important because sometimes we, we look at like the format, well, I was supposed to do this, this, and that. Mm -hmm. But really, a lot of times decisions are made in the bathroom over mm -hmm. dinner <laughs> and so you kind of also need to know what are the informal channels in which decisions are made um within that formal channel so you really as joe said can really be thoughtful and strategic about how you're going to navigate um that that arena well to my surprise we have a new sponsor for this episode it's bowman and deals for frames of leadership uh, we've mentioned the symbolic, the political, the relationship, all of that. So, uh, so we'll we'll send them a bill since they're getting a lot of free plugs here. Uh, we are almost out of time. Uh, this podcast is called Student Affairs Now. Just real quick from each of you, you could just tell us one thing that you're pondering, wondering, troubling uh, right now, maybe related to this or not. So, just real quick from each of you, one thing, and then if folks want to connect with you, where can they do that? Uh, Ardell, what are you troubling now? I think right now for me is the enrollment cliff and the challenges around enrollment management, how boards and uh, universities, colleges and universities are going to navigate that moving forward. And not just for the institution that I serve, but across the board, because it affects everyone um, in, in various ways. But there are some folks who will be looking for people, other folks will be looking for different types of people. So it just kind of depends. Uh, but that, that is a big thought on my, on my heart and mind now. Thank you. Joe, what are you troubling now? cost of higher education. Under my presidency, and I was directly responsible for all of these tuition increases, I think over nine years, I raised it about 120%. At the time, I was just convinced I needed more money to do more good. Um, there were many unintended consequences. So you might think things like free community college might be a good thing and actually led that in a, a nationwide thing, visiting Tennessee and, and elsewhere. But um, now with the opportunity to reflect back, there are too many unintended consequences of these blanket, big blanket programs that might actually put money in the hands of the wrong people. So I think the cost of higher education is my main concern. We've got to get it under control. The bubble's going to burst as it has in higher ed and banking and a, and a host of other institutions. And I think we got to find a way to make that work. Wonderful. Felicia, what are you troubling now? Uh, so I'm actually thinking about... Uh, leadership and thinking about how between the graying of the presidency, which we've been talking about for probably 15 years now, um, has hit us. Um, and, and I think COVID uh, pushed it forward a little bit more. And we've got a number of presidential vacancies and, and presidential resignations that are happening kind of in a swift moment, um, particularly in the HBCU sector. And so the question is that we've been asking for the last 15 years <laughs> is where are the new presidents coming from? Are there pipelines for them? And um, this is where boards come in. How will boards be selecting presidents for this new era of higher education? How are they thinking about what is needed to be a leader um, in a, in a post-COVID 
post-COVID higher education space and a space where we are reaching that tuition cost, um, cost bubble, where we're thinking about enrollment cliff, who are the people who are best primed? And is it the traditional pipelines that we've thought of before? Um, who are the people sitting around the table that are gonna make that decision? Um, and in addition to that, what does it look like when Generation Z and millennials are becoming presidents and cabinet leaders on our campuses and tenured faculty? How is that gonna shift what higher education looks like? Um, because now we're seeing a generational shift at large on who is the leadership on campus. So what will that look like and what does that mean for higher education and how we know it? Well, thank you. And will boards I'll, follow? I should add that. Yeah, will boards, <laughs> will follow? boards yes. follow? I can't wait for Gen Z to get on these boards. Uh, this has been terrific. Thanks to each of you for all of your hard work uh, uh, in this conversation, your experience, your expertise, your scholarship, your research, your wisdom. It's been fantastic. Thanks to our sponsors of today's episode, Anthology and Leadership. Uh, with Anthology, transform your student experience and advance co-curricular learning with Anthology Engage. With this technology platform, you are able to easily manage student organizations, efficiently plan events, and truly understand student involvement to continuously improve your engagement efforts at your institution. Learn more by visiting anthology.com engage. And also Leadership. Leadership partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in-person, for students and professionals with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. Leadership offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more, please visit leadership.org slash virtual programs or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Huge shout out to Natalie Ambrosi, Nats, the production assistant for the podcast who does all of the behind the scenes work to make us all look and sound good. So thank you, Nat. And if you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at studentaffairsnow.com. Scroll to the bottom of the homepage to add your name to our MailChimp list. While you're at it, check out the archives. I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks to the fabulous guests today and to everyone who's watching and listening. Make it a great week.